0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Once one of the biggest companies in the world, New England-based General Electric is facing big challenges.
2: It's not the strongest that survives. It's not the smartest that survives. It's the one that adapts to change. And that's true of corporations for sure. And you see it even with the mightiest.
1: From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. Speaking of adapting to change, we'll explore new techniques in aquaculture. It allows them to be lobster fishing at one time in the day, and then with maybe a half an hour's difference, they can be scallop farming. And so that's flexibility right there. And we'll visit a delivery room where new parents and doctors are working as a team to reduce C-sections.
0: I would love women everywhere to be able to come in and have a safe birth and a healthy baby. If someone said, why are you doing this, that's why I'm doing it.
1: Plus, we'll learn about a murder in New Hampshire that's changed the way that cases are investigated.
3: I mean, this is the biggest step forward for solving crime since the discovery of DNA itself.
1: It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. Let's start with a business story, a story about a company that was once one of the biggest, most valuable, and most innovative in the world, General Electric. The company made big news in New England two years ago when they left behind their suburban Connecticut campus for a new headquarters in Boston's booming seaport district. At the time, the company said it wanted to be part of the city's tech scene, and Connecticut politicians took a beating for letting the company get away. But now GE's stock price is way down. It got booted off the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And in a move that shocked investors around the globe, GE has now replaced its CEO, who had served just over one year. As WBUR's Bruce Gellerman reports, shareholders are now asking, how did the industrial conglomerate get here and what's next?
4: In its 125-year history, General Electric has had just 13 leaders. Average time heading the fabled company founded by inventor Thomas Edison is about a decade. But CEO John Flannery lasted just 14 months.
2: It's stunning, absolutely stunning.
4: Bill Olette is professor of practice and managing director of the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship.
2: You always looked at GE as the pillar, the gold standard for management.
4: In 2016, CEO Jeff Immelt brought the company's world headquarters to Boston. But under Immelt, GE lost its mojo and direction. His promise of turning the conglomerate into the world's first digital industrial company failed. John Flannery, a 30-year GE veteran, took over. He inherited a diverse mix of companies that was hemorrhaging cash. Share prices fell in Immelt's final year and continued plummeting under Flannery, who last October said, he was willing to try anything.
2: We need to make some major changes with urgency and a depth of purpose. Everything is on the table and there have been no sacred cows.
4: Flannery cut GE's near-sacred dividend in half and laid out a two-year plan to sell $20 billion of assets. But large institutional investors ran out of patience before Flannery's plan had a chance to run its course. Again, MIT's Bill Ollett.
2: It's not the strongest that survives. It's not the smartest that survives. It's the one that adapts to change. And that's true of corporations, for sure. And you see it even with the mightiest.
4: In 2004, GE was the most valuable company on Wall Street. Once known as the darling of the Dow, by last summer, it was dead last and was delisted from the index. Last week, the stock plunged to less than $12. Flannery's fate was sealed. GE is replacing him with Lawrence Culp. Culp once led Danaher Company. It began as a Massachusetts real estate investment trust. Culp is credited with turning the company into a model of what a modern conglomerate could be through mergers and acquisitions. Shareholder value increased fivefold in a decade. Culp became a GE board member just last April and is the company's first CEO who hasn't risen through the GE ranks. Bill Lolette says, That's going to be a challenge.
2: How do you keep what's good about GE and fix it, which is hard for an internal person because it's hard to correct your own homework. But if you get an external person, they can look at it differently and change it, but they're not part of the DNA. So it's very hard for them to keep the good people there. Because if you don't have the people, you're just not going to be able to get this done.
4: GE came to Boston hoping to capitalize on the young engineering talent here, promising to bring 800 jobs to the city by 2025, day one of GE's new leadership. Its share price rose 7%. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Bruce Gellerman. In Bruce's story, you heard analysts talking
1: about adapting to change. Well, that can be hard in a big conglomerate like GE and also in an ages-old business like commercial fishing. But the uncertainty of climate change is, well, it's changing that. The waters in the Gulf of Maine are warming faster than most of the planet's saltwater oceans, disrupting coastal ecosystems and economies. And the lobster industry, currently booming, is looking at these new challenges, and some are betting on diversification to hedge against the unpredictable. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever has more. Marsden Brewer is a third-generation
5: Maine fisherman who docks in Stonington. I've been involved in all the fisheries, you know, over, over my lifetime. These days, it's mostly lobster, but he's fished cod and shrimp and carted urchin to market. They were all once vibrant species, but now they're mostly off limits after being weakened by climate change and overfished.
4: Not intentionally, but you know, just the way it was set up to work, it wasn't sustainable. This project here is looking at sustainability
5: in a fishery. This project is Brewer's 20-year effort to diversify his business by developing a profitable scallop farm. He used to scatter baby scallops in the bay, then drag up the adults from the seafloor a couple years later. Success was limited, though. So now, from his 38-foot lobster boat moored more than a mile offshore, Brewer is experimenting with methods from Japan, where scallop farming is a long tradition. Brewer, son Bobby, and Dana Morse, a marine extension agent with the University of Maine, winch up from the depths a long rope strung with 12-foot-tall dark mesh bags. The collapsible bags are partitioned by horizontal shelves, giving them the look of a giant Japanese paper lantern Inside, each level holds twenty or so squirting scallops.
4: Dana, hey come take a look at these.
1: This has got a lot of crap on it. Holy moly. Those ones there came from across the bay, I'd say. Yeah. The I mean the nets are in fantastic shape and the, the scallops look awesome. Yeah. Yep. Brewer first
5: netted these scallops two years ago when they were in their free-floating larval stage, known as a spat. The boat's crew carefully measures their growth.
6: 63, 68.
5: They're more than two inches wide now, not quite ready yet for market. Extension agent Morse first visited Japan 20 years ago to check out scallop systems there, and he's been back since, towing along fishermen like Brewer. Now, Morse says the brewers are leading the way for other lobstermen looking for affordable ways
1: to diversify. The handling system that Mars and Bob have put together is fabulous because it allows them to be lobster fishing at one time in the day and then with maybe a half an hour's difference they can be scallop farming and so that's flexibility right there. So it's really cool to see that stuff in action. Back
5: the scallops go deep into the nutritious water column. Brewer expects to sell tens of thousands of them this winter and to fetch upwards of a buck fifty each wholesale. Eventually he expects scallop profits to rival his lobster take and more predictably.
4: It's, it's got some real good potential. Just wanna make sure everything's gonna work
5: before we take the next step. Down in Casco Bay, some young shellfish entrepreneurs are going all in on the next step.
3: Okay,
6: ready?
5: John Gorman works at Bangs Island Mussels. On a boat docked on Portland's waterfront, he and a gaggle of young men from several Maine shellfish farms run live scallops through a high-pressure washer. It was just imported from Japan by the nonprofit Coastal Enterprises, Inc., which is encouraging seafood farmers around Maine to try it out. And for these guys, it's strictly learn-as-you-go because the manual is in
3: Japanese. But the more we learn about it, the more we realize how well-designed it really is. It makes me a little nervous, uh, having such expensive machinery on this boat.
5: On the wharf, the scallops are sorted and clipped into a metal conveyor belt to be met by an automated drill that punches tiny holes through their squared-off corners, known as the ears. Nate Perry of the Pine Point Oyster Company fine-tunes the drill.
6: So it's very, very precise. Once you're really dialed in, I mean, you can turn the speed up and you just, you can't keep up with it almost, you know?
5: Next, the men thread plastic pins through the scallops' newly pierced ears, then string them on a rope to be sent back to the sea. The Japanese technique is called ear hanging. Back at the washer, 30-year-old John Gorman says new technologies that save time processing scallops and other marine crops promise a bright future for aquaculture in Maine.
6: Part of new New industry, you know, I see a lot of growth, and you never know. We're going to be doing scallops, and then we'll be back to mussels, and
3: then in the springtime, in the fall, we're in the kelp. It's it's fun.
5: And Gorman and a growing number of would-be scallop farmers are hoping profitable. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland,
1: Maine. That story is part of a series, Aquaculture's Next Wave, You can see more of Fred's reporting, including videos of scallop farming, on our website, nextnewengland.org. Let's go back for a minute to that story about General Electric. That company got big incentives, about $120 million from Massachusetts, $25 million from the city of Boston, to move its headquarters from Connecticut. Now, for that money, they promised to employ 800 workers at its new offices in Boston. What's less clear is what exactly happens to that money if they don't meet that goal. It's become commonplace for companies to either threaten to move or relocate across state lines, chasing tax breaks and state incentive programs aimed at creating jobs. For instance, over the last 20 years, the state of Vermont has authorized more than $10 million in payments to Keurig Green Mountain. Yeah, it's that Keurig, the company that makes those K-cup pods. But as VPR's Henry Epp reports, how much money Keurig received and what they did with it, well, that's shrouded in secrecy.
3: You know Keurig machines. Maybe there's one in your kitchen or at your work. You pop in one of those little plastic cups into the holder on top, close the lid, hit a button, and in a few seconds, you've got a warm cup of coffee or tea. This company started out as a small coffee roaster in Vermont, but about 10 years ago, its products got really popular, and that meant big profits and major growth. So how did that happen? a lot of factors, including money from the state of Vermont designed to create jobs. Most of it came from a program called Veggie, And I'm not talking about carrots and broccoli. Veggie stands for Vermont Employment Growth Incentive. Here's how Veggie is supposed to work. The state promises to pay back a company like Keurig after it can prove that it created jobs or made investments. Keurig has been approved for the most money of all companies that have become eligible for the payments. But exactly how much they received and what they did with it, I wanted to find out. So I called Casey Mock. Hi, this is Casey. This was in March of this year. At the time, Mock was the head of the Vermont Economic Progress Council, the board that calls the shots, read, decides who gets the money for the veggie program.
6: To have that information
5: and by connection the jobs associated with that information publicly
2: available would present a problem.
3: Mock quickly told me that there's a state law that prevents him from telling me how much money the state gave to Keurig or what they did with it. The reason, he says, to protect a company's proprietary information, like a prospective contract or product. Mock's advice for finding out how many taxpayer dollars the state paid Keurig, ask Keurig.
2: And of course, like, whatever Keurig tells you that they're happy to disclose, um, you know, it's not like we're going to stop that sure. either. Um. Sure.
3: So I reached out to Keurig. I asked them for documentation of the actual payments they received from the state and and of the number and types of jobs created with that money. No immediate response. And then in April, nearly three weeks later, Casey Mock, with the state, calls to tell me the company will be in touch. You will be hearing from them, and they'll be sending you a statement. The statement the company sent over claimed the program made it possible for Keurig to, quote, "...maintain a strong physical presence in Vermont," and create over 2,000 jobs and spend over $450 million. What the statement does not say is whether or not those jobs would have been created without the incentives. It also does not say anything about exactly how much money the company has received from the state. A Keurig spokesperson would not provide me with an interview or a tour of their headquarters in Waterbury. Businesses are used to keeping their information private, but taxpayer dollars are usually subject to public scrutiny. This lack of transparency bothers state auditor Doug Hoffer. Hoffer thinks at least the number of jobs created by these awards should be public.
7: I think the people of the
1: state
3: have a right to know. Uh, I don't think employment data would uh, would compromise the integrity of the firm. Even though it's not out in the open, there is a cost-benefit analysis built into the veggie program. When a company comes to the state with a proposal, and before the state gives out a veggie award, they run that proposal through a model to figure out how much the state would benefit. Casey Mock showed me a redacted version of this system.
6: All right, so I brought uh, a copy of what we'll discuss
3: uh, for you. Okay. The model weighs things like how much new employees will spend on lunch. As well as, you know, wear and tear on the roads, that kind of stuff. Still, we can't see how all this played out for Keurig. As far as the actual payments from the state to Keurig, the Commerce Department considers those to be tax returns, so they too are confidential. Meeting minutes from the board that oversees Veggie are public. During one meeting in 2007, the company, which was known as Green Mountain Coffee Roasters at the time, told the board it might expand outside Vermont, and it called public funds critical to staying here. I'd hope the meeting minutes would reveal how much money was spent and on what. But every time the board actually discussed whether to approve Keurig for a veggie award, that appears to have happened in executive session, meaning there's no public notes of what was said. The next question is, what has the state gotten for all of this? It's supposed to create jobs, and therefore money for the state, but while Keurig clearly grew in Vermont, not all those jobs stuck around. Waterbury-based Keurig Green Mountain says it will cut approximately 200 jobs in Vermont. Since 2015, Keurig has laid off at least 455 workers in Vermont, including 35 as recently as May. I figured at the very least, I could compare the number of people Keurig has employed over time to try to track the impact of the state funds that way. But Dirk Anderson, the general counsel for the state's Labor Department, says even that's not possible.
5: That information is considered confidential.
3: Over this past winter, Keurig announced their merging with Dr. Pepper. And in June, the state stopped paying out installments of one of the company's veggie awards because the company's workforce dropped so significantly, according to a state report. But Keurig Dr. Pepper is apparently not done using the veggie program. Last year, a company called Bedford Systems applied for a $1.2 million veggie award. That business is attempting to create a home beverage-making system for alcoholic drinks. It's a joint venture of Anheuser-Busch and Keurig. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Henriette. Coming up, we'll visit a delivery room to hear a new C-section
1: reduction program in action. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. In the U.S. in 2016, about 32% of all deliveries were by cesarean, or as it's better known, C-section. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. For mothers who deliver children by C-section, there are greater risks involved, and oftentimes the surgery is not a medical necessity. In our region, more than 35% of all live births in Connecticut were cesarean. That's one of the top five rates in the country. In contrast, Vermont boasts one of the lower rates, about 26% of C-section births. There's a new initiative by Dr. Atul Gawande's Ariadne Labs that's working to drive those numbers even lower. To tell this story, we're going to take you to a place we usually don't get to go, inside the room during a birth. The mother from Hanover, Massachusetts, already had four children when she delivered twin boys on the last day of August, right around dinner time. WBUR's Martha Beeminger takes us to South Shore Hospital in Weymouth, Massachusetts, where Melissa and Sean McDougall have just checked in.
8: Melissa McDougall is propped up in bed, blonde hair pulled into a neat bun, makeup still fresh. She's ordered a sub, turkey, ham, and provolone with mayo, when her regular obstetrician, who's on duty today, pops in.
0: How are you even have babies today? Are you excited? Yes.
8: Dr. Ruth Levesque claps her hands, chats a bit, and reviews steps she's discussed with the McDougals many times. Melissa will be given Pitocin, a drug to induce labor. The first twin expected out, Brady, is head down, positioned for a normal vaginal delivery. Levesque turns to Sean McDougall, a tall, lanky man who can barely contain his excitement.
0: So if you're catching the first one, I'm going to be gloved with you, just because I I have a degree. We'll see what happens with baby B.
8: Baby B, to be named Bryce, is the boy who will really test what's called the team birth project and one of its main goals, fewer cesarean sections. Right now, Bryce is horizontal across the top of Melissa's uterus. Babies do not come out sideways. That's one reason Melissa may be headed for a C-section. And there's another, says Dr. Levesque. Melissa delivered a daughter, now four, by cesarean.
0: She has a scar in her uterus, so there's a risk of uterine rupture. Very rare, but there's always a possibility.
8: And possibly a greater risk for Melissa, who is 37 and is having twins. But the McDougals want vaginal deliveries for both boys. I just feel
0: like it's better for the kids, better for the babies.
8: And better for most moms. About half of all cesareans are considered avoidable. They are the focus of the team birth project designed by Dr. Neil Shaw and colleagues at Ariadne Labs in Boston, now in the testing phase at South Shore Hospital. Shaw begins with an acknowledgement: Childbirth is complicated. You've got two patients, the mother and the baby, and an ad hoc, often shifting team that at a minimum includes the mom, a nurse, and a doctor.
6: So you've got, you know, three people who have to come together and become a very high-performing team in a really short period of time for one of the most important moments in a person's life.
8: And this team has to perform at its best during an unpredictable event, labor. Shaw says doctors and nurses are sure of some things, like when a mom is in active labor. And much of the time they agree about when a mom can have a vaginal delivery and when she needs a c-section.
6: And then there's this huge gray zone. And actually everything about the team birth project is about solving for the gray.
8: The team birth project solution includes an individual childbirth plan for every woman at South Shore laid out on a whiteboard divided into sections. The hospital's OB chief, Dr. Kim Dever, shows me one a few days before Melissa McDougall arrives.
0: The first column talks about the team, defined as the patient, most important, their support person, the nurse taking care of the patient, and then the provider or providers.
8: Names are added and erased as family members come and go and nurses change shifts. Then the next column talks about the plan, and we again break it down into those three important factors, the maternal, the fetal,
0: and the progress.
8: The mother, baby, and the labor are tracked as three separate elements of a delivery. A mom with high blood pressure may need special attention, but that doesn't mean she can't have a normal delivery. A section called Next Assessment lets moms know what to expect. One of the most important pieces we put on there is when are we going to next assess the patient.
0: When we leave the room, they kind of know what's next.
8: Back in the McDougals' room, Dr. Levesque has a green dry erase marker poised over a category labeled Patient Preferences that will guide Melissa's delivery.
0: Melissa, specific things besides babies on your chest, Sean helping with delivery, other specific things that are important to you guys? Perfect, absolutely, yep. So, I'm going to write that. So, skin to skin,
8: epidural. Everyone settles in to wait. About four hours later, Melissa isn't yet feeling contractions. Dr. Levesque breaks the water sack around Brady. Looks nice and clear. Yeah. Didn't get it. Hi, bud. I'm glad Aww. to hang out with us. Tickling this little kiddo's head. Whenever you start getting uncomfortable and you think you want an epidural, we'll do epidural at that point. An epidural is Melissa's preference, but it's her doctor's too. In fact, they insisted that Melissa agree to be numbed from the waist down if she wants to deliver Bryce vaginally. OBs may need to turn the baby, find a foot, and pull Bryce out, causing pain most women would not tolerate. Hi, hi. how are you? Hi. <laughs> Enter Dr. Terry Marino, a high-risk OB who specializes in delivering babies positioned like Bryce. Marino has been seeing Melissa regularly, along with Dr. Levesque. Sean asks if they'll all pose for a picture with Melissa. Can we make funny
0: faces? I want you to. (laughs) (laughs) I would love for you to. Can (laughs) you Snapchat? You guys are like her favorite people on the planet.
8: As the hours tick by, nurse Barbara Fatemi checks Melissa's pain level. Okay, don't hold your breath. Breathe, relax. Melissa says she can tolerate a lot of pain, but Sean tells Fatemi he sees the strain in his wife's face. Fatemi acts on Sean's assessment, something he says later reinforces his feeling that they're a team.
0: Are you getting uncomfortable and you'd like to consider having that epidural placed (laughs) right now? Okay.
8: When it's in, but before the drugs start flowing, Melissa gets up to go to the bathroom. She returns looking scared, color draining from her face. Fatemi calls Dr. Levesque. While in the bathroom, Melissa felt the urge to push. I was not expecting that.
4: So was, much like, pressure. I mean it,
8: it didn't feel anything until I went to the bathroom.
0: Really shaking are you okay?
3: Mm-hmm.
8: See you, my
0: friend, are ten centimeters.
8: Melissa has to move quickly now into an operating room. She'll deliver both babies there, in case Bryce doesn't shift and she needs a last minute cesarean. I'll see you in a few Get minutes. No pushing without me, okay? As nurses roll Melissa down the hall, she has one question for Sean. Did you talk to my mom? Yep,
0: yeah, she knows. We're good.
8: Almost five years ago, two women wheeled into South Shore operating rooms during childbirth died. Both had C-sections. State investigators found no evidence of substandard care. But Dr. Dever says the hospital scrutinized everything.
0: I think when you have something like that happen, that um, expedites your efforts um, exponentially.
8: Now, Dever says she sees an opportunity through the Team Birth Project to model changes that could help women far and wide.
0: I would love women everywhere to be able to
8: come in and have a safe birth and a healthy baby. If someone said, why are you doing this? That's why I'm doing it. Okay, so we're in at 1712. But the Team Birth Project is about to be pushed to its limits by tiny Bryce McDougal. First, though, Melissa must push out Bryce's brother, Brady. Okay, you ready? Grab this hand from me. Ready? <gasps> Curl down. Push like heck. Push, push, push. Bent nearly in half, her face beat red, Melissa strains for five pushes. She throws up and gets back at it.
9: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hello. Okay. Okay. Okay.
8: Oh.
7: He's
8: Sean steps back, weeping. Dr. Marino takes his place next to Dr. Levesque, who has reached inside Melissa, her mission is to grab Bryce's feet and guide him out. But everything feels like fingers, not toes. That's a hand. Yeah. That's a hand, too. Yeah. Dr. Marino rolls an ultrasound across Melissa's belly, hoping the scan will show a foot. But Bryce's feet are out of sight and out of reach. It feels like, a hand.
7: You a hand. All I have is hands.
8: Dr. Marino, who has more experience with transverse babies, asks to try. She reaches into Melissa's uterus while Dr. Levesque moves to Melissa's right side and starts using her forearm to shift Bryce to push him down. Dr. Dever, the head of OB, has come in and takes over the ultrasound. At least six doctors and nurses encircle Melissa, whose face is taut. Sean frowns.
1: okay? Uh okay?
8: Melissa nods. Bryce's heart rate is steady, but there's still no sign of a foot. His hands are so close, one slips out. Dr. Marino nudges it back in. hold it
0: down. Open the table.
8: Dr. Marino has asked to open the table, meaning the array of surgical instruments next to Melissa's bed Marino will use to perform a C-section if necessary. Then, Dr. Marino asks me to stop recording. For 36 seconds, this room with more than a dozen adults grows oddly quiet while Dr. Marino twists her arm this way and that, determined to find Bryce's feet. Dr. Levesque leans hard into Melissa's belly. Sean bites his lip. Then, Marino yanks at something, and there's her gloved, bloody hand clutching two teensy legs.
3: Oh, baby, here he comes. Here he comes,
8: babe, here he comes. <laughs> Sean is weeping again. Melissa manages an exhausted giggle. Bryce keeps everyone waiting a few more seconds, and then howls. Outside the OR, doctors Lavec and Marino look relieved and elated. Both agree that most doctors would have delivered Bryce by C-section. But here, the McDougals had a hospital that has challenged itself to perform fewer C-sections— and a doctor with experience in these unusual deliveries, one who knew the parent's preference. You know, they specifically wanted to have vaginal delivery of both babies. And are you thinking that in that moment? Yep. you're searching for the... Absolutely. Absolutely. Bryce was fine, says Marino, so the deciding factor was that Sean and Melissa did not panic. They did not flinch. They were like, keep going. Because sometimes patients will say, stop. And then you have, you stop. Sean says he came close in that last minute before Bryce was born.
3: It was pretty aggressive.
8: But Sean says feeling that he and Melissa were part of the team in that moment made a difference.
3: I think it made us more comfortable.
8: And what did that translate
3: into? Trust. That we trust the decisions that they were making.
8: Melissa says she's grateful for the vaginal delivery.
0: I did not want to have
4: to have a natural and C-section. Oh my God, that's I know, that would be a brutal recovery.
8: Now, 30 minutes after Dr. Marino pulled Bryce out of her, Melissa is nursing Brady and FaceTiming with the in laws. Hey, Pa. Thank you. I'm proud of you.
9: Good (laughs) job. Thank you. They're beautiful.
8: South Shore began using the team birth approach in April. The test period will run for two years. In the first four months, by one measure, the hospital's C section rate has dropped from 31 to 27 percent or about four fewer C-sections each month. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger.
1: If you wanna see some amazing behind the scenes photos, you can go to nextnewengland.org. The rate of uninsured people in small towns and rural areas is higher than those in more populated cities. That's the case pretty much across America. New England is no different, but our region has been cutting those numbers pretty drastically since the expansion of Medicaid coverage. That is in the states like Vermont, New Hampshire, and Connecticut that expanded the number of people on Medicaid. The state in our region that didn't do that, Maine, has seen the number of rural uninsured actually go up. Those figures are from a new study about health coverage in rural areas from Georgetown's Center for Children and Families. Joan Alker is co-author of that study. Joan, welcome to Next.
7: Thank you for having me.
1: First of all, why don't you explain broadly what this study tries to do? What is it you're trying to learn here?
7: So we looked over time at the impact of the Medicaid expansion in the Affordable Care Act on small towns and rural areas across the country And the reason we did this is because rural areas actually tend to have higher rates of uninsurance, and there's not a lot of awareness of how important the Medicaid program is to rural areas. So what we did was ultimately we found that states that had expanded Medicaid saw three times as large a drop in their uninsured population as states that had not.
1: But maybe you could define for us rural areas and small towns. What are we talking about here?
7: So we only looked at counties that have no cities or a city that has under 50,000 people. That's our definition of rural. Rhode Island, Massachusetts were not included. Connecticut was included. And certainly Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont have a lot of rural communities.
1: So explain a bit more about Medicaid expansion and and what exactly the states were faced with. As we understand, some states decided to take federal money, expand uh, the Medicaid population, others declined to, but maybe you could give us a, a bit more detail about the differences in the states that you're studying.
7: Sure. So after the Supreme Court ruled on the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, It became essentially optional for states if they wanted to go ahead and expand Medicaid with federal funds to their low-income adults or not. And the majority of states have done that, but there are still about 17 states today that have not. In New England, Maine is the only state today that does not have an expansion up and running, although, as you know, Maine voters did actually pass the ballot last year.
1: They passed it at the ballot last year. However, it hasn't yet been instituted in in large part because of the governor of the state of Maine's objection to, to Medicaid expansion. Well, let's start there. What exactly has this meant to Maine over the course of this time without expanding Medicaid? How have the residents of Maine, specifically in rural areas, how have they done as far as access to health coverage?
7: So Maine really jumps out in our data has rural communities have really paid the price for the governor's opposition to the Medicaid expansion. And, you know, that's a problem for rural communities in Maine, not just for those folks who are not able to get health insurance through Medicaid, but it's a problem for everybody living in those communities. And that's because rural areas tend to have more provider shortages. If you look at the map of hospital closures in rural areas across the country, it's primarily happening in states that have not expanded Medicaid. And because healthcare is harder to come by in rural areas, those providers, it's very hard for them to carry such a big load of uninsured adults.
1: So you're saying that when there's a higher number of uninsured adults, it means that over time, the amount of actual care that's available in rural areas starts to erode.
7: That's right. If you think about women of childbearing age, for example, whether or not they're on Medicaid, they need to go to a hospital most likely to deliver their baby. And if rural hospitals are carrying a very high load of uninsured patients, it's very hard for them to keep their doors open. So what we see today is that Maine has the highest uninsured rate in rural areas in New England at 23%. Every other state saw a decline and in some cases a very large decline. Connecticut actually had one of the largest declines in the country. The number of uninsured adults, low-income adults living in rural areas started at 32% in 2009 and went down to 9% by 2016 as a result of Medicaid expansion. That's a 23 percentage point decline, a huge decline. New Hampshire and Vermont also saw significant declines. New Hampshire, 17 percentage point decline, and of Vermont, a 12 percentage point decline.
1: I'm wondering what you can tell us specifically in these rural areas that you studied about access to health insurance actually meaning access to care, actually meaning access to better health care results, because that's the end goal, right, is to make sure that we have a healthier rural population. Do you think that these things line up that indeed having access to insurance means better outcomes for health care for rural residents?
7: It absolutely does. The research is very clear on that. We reference a couple of other studies in our report that show actually for clinics in rural areas even experienced greater increases on quality measures such as asthma treatment, hypertension control, or mammograms, things like that, than in urban areas. And, and I think that's because there are fewer providers in rural areas, it's so important for folks to have coverage. You know, the other piece that folks often don't think about is you and I have health insurance because we want to protect ourselves from medical debt and bankruptcy. And that is a key aspect of what Medicaid provides, that kind of economic security so that one isn't left with a huge hospital bill. And so for communities like rural communities that, that often tend to have higher unemployment rates, that kind of protection is vital as well.
1: Joan Alker is executive director of the Center for Children and Families at the Georgetown University Health Policy Institute and a co-author of this new study, Health Insurance Coverage in Small Towns in Rural America, The Role of Medicaid Expansion. Joan, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it.
7: Thank you so much.
1: Coming up, we learn about murders that change the way murder cases are investigated. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. A new podcast out of NHPR called Bear Brook tells the story of four bodies found in Bear Brook State Park and the investigation to find out who they were and who put them there. Joining us today to discuss the case and the new podcast is Jason Moon. He's a reporter for NHPR and the host of Bear Brook. He started by telling us about Bear Brook State Park and the discovery of a
6: barrel there back in 1985. So Bear Brook State Park is uh, right in the middle of New Hampshire. It's mostly in a town called Allenstown, New Hampshire, about 15 minutes east of Concord. And inside the barrel uh, was a pretty grisly discovery. It was two bodies, two murder victims. One was an adult female estimated to be in her late 20s, and the other was a girl child, maybe 9 or 10 years old. The story of how that barrel was discovered is sort of interesting. There was an initial partial discovery by a group of kids, 11-year-old boys who were playing hide-and-seek out in the woods, came across the barrel sensed there was something strange about it, but ultimately never looked inside. And so they have uh, strong memories of that because they found out later, of course, that, um, that there were bodies inside. And that second discovery came when a hunter came across the barrel and then called the police. And uh, one of the first, actually the first officer to arrive there was an officer by the name of Ron Mott Pleasure. He was a police officer in Allenstown for 23 years. And here's what he, what he told me about that day. The, the
9: barrel was on the ground, and there was a bag, and when I opened the bag, well, the face was, the decomposed face was looking right at me. I couldn't believe that there's a decomposed body, you um, know, looking at me right in the face, staring me. I, I, I can picture it right now. I can picture exactly what that face, how it looked. It's,
1: it's such a grisly discovery, and i'm I'm wondering uh, first of all though Jason, when these bodies are discovered. D- does anyone know anything about them who who they are, why they're there?
6: Absolutely nothing. That was and continues to be the really baffling thing about the case is uh, it's a it's a, just an utter complete mystery. still to this day we really have have uh, no idea what their what their names are, where they were from. There's just so much we don't know. Which is pretty unusual Um, when you think about how a a murder case is generally solved. Police start with the identity of the victim. Most people are killed by people that they knew. So you can sort of begin with the list of people that the victim knew. But in this case, police couldn't even get started because they could never figure out who those people were. So
1: then, fifteen years later, there's a second barrel that's discovered in the state park. Why did it take so long to find this second barrel?
6: Yeah, that's that's a difficult question and one that always comes up when you talk about the Bear Brook case. It was it was in the year two thousand. Fifteen years after the first barrel was discovered, a, a state trooper detective working the case as a cold case was just familiarizing himself with the details, had never been out to the area where the barrel was found. So he went out there one day, his first trip to the scene, and found a second barrel with two more bodies in it, just 300 feet from where the first barrel was found. You know, it's hard to know for sure why that second barrel wasn't found initially. You know, there's there's a lot of factors that could have played into it. One was that there was another murder on that same weekend in 1985 when the first barrel was discovered, that went on to become another sort of famous or infamous cold case in New Hampshire history. So police may have been overwhelmed, but also, you know, this was the 1980s in a small town in New Hampshire. There wasn't a lot of precedent for this kind of casework. When I was speaking with Officer Montpleasure who found the first barrel, he talked to me about the kind of police work they were doing back in the 80s.
9: We used to call it, let's go fishing. You know, you'd make a motor vehicle stop, and you knew somebody that may have known some information about a crime. My my line was, you know, any good fishing spots? And uh, they knew what I was talking about. We weren't actually going fishing, but, you know, that meant the difference between, I mean, either receiving a warning or receiving a summons or just helping me out. And there was always somebody that knew a good fishing spot. <laughs> always
1: so he's he's describing the the ways in which they they did investigations at the time It doesn't sound as though this was a a team of people who were well tasked with uh with investigating the type of murders that that we saw there
6: perhaps not although you know I do think it's worth saying that other investigators over the years took their own cracks at this case and failed just as just as well so you know there's something to be said about the way this case was initially investigated and there's also a lot to be said about just how baffling and and uh mysterious it has been from from the beginning from 1985 but but you say that this case it did change the way that murders would be investigated from from that time forward why is that tell us more about that yeah and that that's really what most interests me about the story personally is is the way that this case was solved or, or I should say partially solved we still don't know who the victims are but we do know a lot, including who killed them, or or at least police believe they have a really good idea of that. And that was because of this new technique, new forensic science technique that's based on genetic genealogy. And listeners may have heard the news earlier this year about the Golden State Killer arrest in that case. And that's the same technique. The, The investigators working the Golden State Killer case were inspired by the use of the technique on the Bear Brook case. And so it's a really fascinating and remarkable use of public DNA databases where people have been spitting into tubes and mailing them into companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. There is a way for police now, and, and genealogists have been doing it for a while, to to use that those databases to find distant relatives of people they are looking to track down the identity of, and then they build family trees. And then they're able to, to do things that traditional detective techniques that other forensic techniques just haven't been able to do. And so it's really opened up this whole new front for investigations, uh, this new forensic front. Cold cases that police have been frustrated with for decades are now, you know, they, they now have new hope. And you, you talk with a guy named Billy Jensen, a, a veteran true
1: crime journalist. And what, what did he tell you about, about this, this history?
6: Yes. Yeah, so he, he worked on the, the book that listeners may know uh, about the Golden State Killer called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. The, the author, Michelle McNamara, passed away while she was writing it, and he helped her to finish that book. And we got into a discussion about this and I, I asked him, you know, what, what does this mean? What, what are the implications of this new technique? And then we had this exchange. I mean, this is the biggest step forward for solving crime since the discovery of DNA itself. So when, when we look back, do you think the the Allentown and, and Golden State killer cases will be kind of remembered as as the the moment? Absolutely. These are the, the two benchmarks right here. We're going to
3: look back on these 20 years, 30 years from now and say this is this is where it started.
1: This is where it started. And sounds like, Jason, what he's talking about there is the, the future of law enforcement, how we track down cases like this in the future
6: yeah absolutely, and it, it's a really exciting for a lot of people. I mean, people like Billy Jensen and, and detectives hope that one day genealogists might even be on staff at police departments to do this kind of work because it is so it can be so powerful. and right now the you know the handful or so of genealogists who who can really do this, who are really good at this, are their inboxes are flooded right now with requests from police departments across the country um, already. It, by my own count, since the Golden State Killer News broke, at least eight other arrests have been made using this technique, uh, most of them cold cases that have been unsolved for a long time. So it's a really exciting time for people in this world, for for true crime uh, journalists and for detectives all across the country, and of course for victims. But there's also this corresponding fear that's that's really come up on the other side with the with the use of this new technique and the, the power that's inherent in it, some people are raising concerns, um, the privacy concerns to be specific. I spoke with a UNH law professor and a, a longtime defense attorney, Buzz Share, and he was a little more skeptical than someone like Billy Jensen. He is he not so sure that we know what we're getting into. And here's what he told me.
2: So if you're one of those people who say, hey, I don't have any problem with that. So fine. Let's just take a genetic sample from everyone who's living in the United States today, Uh, everyone who's born from now on, everyone who immigrates to this country, and have this huge population-wide genetic database. I'm sure those of you who say there's no problem with this, you have no problem with that. The huge majority of people I've talked to have a big problem with that.
1: I, I, I won't give uh, spoilers here because I'd love people to, to <laughs> listen to the, the rest of the podcast because it's fascinating storytelling. But I guess I should ask for people who haven't been following it very closely. Police know more about who may have committed these murders. Uh, and there's a sense in the community that this isn't a, a Golden State killer situation where there still could be somebody on the loose who did these things so many years ago.
6: No, that's yeah, that's important to point out. The today we do police believe we know who was responsible for the murders and that person died uh, while serving a prison sentence for a separate murder. So, in that sense there is closure, at least partial, that we know who did it, but we still don't know who the victims are, which is even more unusual than having unidentified victims in a small town like Allenstown, but having unidentified murder victims and essentially solving the case in reverse by finding the killer before you find the identity of the mm-hmm. victims is just another way that the case is, is just so strange. It is strange. It's fascinating storytelling.
1: You should check out uh, the Bear Brook podcast anywhere you get your podcasts, also at bearbrookpodcast.org. Jason Moon is a reporter for NHPR, host of this brand new podcast. Jason, thank you so much for, for joining us, and congratulations. It's fascinating storytelling. Thanks for having me. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, you can be sure to rate it and review it on iTunes. Thanks. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at ToddMerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.